When I was a kid, I remember one Christmas morning, my family and I, we opened presents, as many of you did this past week. And then that afternoon, we went over to a friend's house, and they had just opened presents too. Now, there's nothing that will kill Christmas joy as seeing your friend's pile of presents compared with yours. And I remember being pretty happy about the presents I got when I left for my friend's house that Christmas day, and that happiness kind of fading as I saw the mountain of incredibly awesome Christmas presents that my friends got. Have you ever had that experience? You, you, you have something of your own. You're like, this is pretty cool. And then you see what someone else got. And suddenly, your life seems drab, dull, colorless, not exciting. It just creates this discontentment. This kind of feeling of being dissatisfied with what you have. And we call this discontentment. Now, unfortunately... Discontentment is not something that we move on from when we lose our baby teeth. We move out of elementary school. Discontentment tends to grow with us. It gets bigger the bigger we get. And maybe you can right here in your seat identify that feeling when you start comparing what you have with what others have. Her boyfriend or his girlfriend, your singleness, his promotion, and his raise, and your boring and futureless career, her friendships, your loneliness, his opportunities, your disappointments, their health and the health of their children, your sickness, and all the untold inconveniences that come with that, their vacations, their marriage their life. And the passage that we've turned to speaks directly to this feeling of dissatisfaction. And there are three parts to this passage, and I'll point these out to you to give you a map of where we're going. And the first is that the writer to the Hebrews is giving us the requirement of contentment in the first part of verse 5 when he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. That's the requirement of contentment. And then secondly, we have the reason for contentment. When he begins with this word for, he has said. And then third, in verse 6, we have the result of contentment so we can confidently say. All right, so you see the structure here is there's a requirement for contentment in the first part of verse 5. And then there is the reason for contentment in the second part of verse 5. And then there is the result or the outcome of contentment in verse 6. And so we'll structure it in that way. And what I'm going to tell you is from this passage, the key to genuine Christian contentment, but I should warn you that it will require you to dismantle some possibly very cherished beliefs. That's what the Word of God does to us. Earlier in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that the Word of God is living living and powerful. It's like a double-edged sword and it pierces to the dividing asunder, the, the writer says, of soul and spirit. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, the, the Word of God has this way of laying bare the thoughts and the motivations and even the logic of your own heart so that it can correct those thoughts and it can correct those motivations and it can make right those motivations. That's what the Word of God does to us. And so when it comes to this topic of contentment, we need to be prepared for the Word of God to lay bare some of our thoughts here and furthermore, we need to be prepared 
to align our thoughts with the Word of God. So here's what the Bible says about contentment from this passage. First of all, the requirement for contentment we find in verse 5. And the writer gives this in two ways. One negatively and one positively. You see it there in verse 5. Negatively, he says, keep your life free from the love of money. And positively, he's saying, be content with what you have. Now, the word that's translated life, if you see it there in verse 5, has to do with the way people live their lives. And the word translated free from the love of money it literally means this. No love of silver. It's actually one word. Uh, in the Greek, it's, it's three parts of that word all crammed together. No love for silver. Silver standing here, standing for any kind of possessions or wealth. And so what he's saying is the way that you live your life should be this kind of way. Not in love with stuff, with possessions. Now it's important to note here that the writer is not telling his readers that they are not allowed to be wealthy. He's not even telling them to give up their wealth. He's simply saying this, the way that you live your life should be a way that is free from a love, a desire for, can we put it this way, even a crush on stuff. How would you know if you have a crush on stuff, if you have this desire or if you're living life in a way that is characterized by a love of things? Well, it's much in the same way that you know that you're in love with somebody. You're thinking about it all the time. You're strategizing about it. You're planning and thinking in your spare time how you can get more of it. You evaluate other people according to what you think is important in terms of their wealth or possessions or status or prestige or whatever it is that you're craving for. You see other people possibly as even the gateway to more of it. This is what it means to have a lifestyle, a way of life that's characterized by a love of possessions, of things, of stuff, of money, whatever it might be. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying, you need to live in such a way, rich or poor, that is free from that kind of thought process, from those kind of motivations, from that way of life. So that's what he's saying negatively. Let your way of life, let your life be free from the love of money. Positively, he's saying, be content with what you have. This is the same word, the word for content is the same word that Paul uses in his first letter to Timothy when he says, if we have food and clothes, let us be content. Paul says something similar in the passage that was read to us earlier in the service that Pastor Ben read when he says, I've learned in whatsoever state I am in that state to be content. And it might seem from this passage that what the writer is saying is something like this. Okay, contentment is a package deal. Get a minimum supply of possessions and contentment comes with it. If you have a basic supply of what you need, you got clothes on your back, you got a roof over your head, you got three square meals a day. Okay, with those basic things, then you can be content. Just don't want more than you need and you'll be okay. It, we can easily think, just, just on a surface reading of this, that the writer is saying, if you have a certain minimum supply, contentment comes wrapped up in that pack package. But actually, when we look at the context of this whole letter, we'll find that that is not the case at all. 
Because he's not writing to a group of people that have enough. In fact, he's writing to a group of people that what they had was taken away from them. And I want you to see that by turning back to chapter 10 and looking at verses 32 to 34. Like I said, if we had read the letter up to this point, we would have understood what it means when the writer is saying, be content with what you have. Okay, what did they have? What was in their possession? Did they have enough? Were they satisfied? Did they have three square meals a day? Did they have a good chunk saved up for retirement? Did they have all these things? Okay, what did they have? We have a little glimpse of it in chapter 10 and verse, beginning verse 32. He says, recall the former days. There were some days in the past when after you were enlightened, in other words, after you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and, listen to this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. The people to whom, the, the people who are reading this letter are not people who have just been rolling in the dough or people even that have modest means. They are people that have been robbed for their faith in Jesus Christ. And now the writer, the, the writer to the Hebrews, has the audacity to say, okay, let your way of living be free from a love of this stuff and be content with what you have left. I think this, th this puts things into perspective. They've lost money. They've lost friends. They've suffered. And so we turn back to Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. And we see it with different eyes. Live in such a way that's free from a love for what you had. And yes, I know you've suffered great loss, but be content with what you have left. And in light of this, it almost seems, remember we're on the requirement of contentment. It almost seems like the requirement of contentment seems rather stern and hard to bear. For someone to say, you need to be content now. How can anyone expect to be content under those conditions? Let me make it personal. How can anyone expect you to be content? After all, it could be that you have suffered loss quite recently. That there is a struggle that you are facing and you feel like something has been torn away from you. It may not be property, it may not be money, it may be a relationship, it may be a sense of well-being, it may be a source of income, whatever it is. You feel like this has been taken away from me and now I'm being told just be content. It's one thing to compare what you have with what other people have. It's, it's another thing to compare what you have now with what you used to have. And still be comparing what you have now to what other people have. And it's highlighted by our ability, through social media and other means, to see all kinds of people's possessions, of all sorts, and let our unhappiness grow and, and our satisfaction shrink. How can we be expected to be content? That brings us to the reason. Because this command for contentment, the requirement for content, contentment, isn't just this bare command put out there. It's actually backed up by a reason, and we see this in the second part of verse 5. 
Here's the requirement. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Here is the reason, and you see it signaled by the word for. That means because. And it goes back to something that God has said. Now, we're moving into the reason for contentment, but I think we need to hit pause and, and take some time to dissect our thinking, to peel back a layer into our heart, understand what is our reason for discontentment. And it comes in this particular belief. Discontentment always springs from this belief that there is something out there that I need to be happy. That's where discontentment comes from. But how do we get that? What is a reason for contentment? How can we gain contentment? And before we look at what the, the Bible says about this in this passage, I want us to compare what people have said about this uh, over the years. And there are two primary ways in which people have said contentment can be gained. Uh, one is by the way of addition and one is by the way of subtraction. Okay, this is just through the centuries, in fact thousands of years people have, have said this. And, and the most obvious way or the most uh, common way of thinking about this is that we can gain contentment by addition, which is just adding, adding more stuff. Okay, I feel discontent with what I have now, so maybe if I have more, I'll gain contentment. Is that, that's a pretty common thought, right? I, I'm, I don't, what I have right now is insufficient and I feel discontent with it, so if I gain more to my supply, then I'll be happy. I mean, this has been refuted by practically every human on the planet, though. I mean, the more we have is, does not necessarily increase our supply of happiness or contentment. I think it's marvelous, marvelously illustrated by the uh, fictitious story of Alexander the Great. When he had conquered so many lands, he came to the end of what he thought was the known world and wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. You couldn't get any greater than Alexander the Great, and yet his heart wasn't filled by all his conquests. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. A recent survey, as I was looking at, at people were uh, doing the survey, and they're asking other people, how much uh, do you think it takes to be wealthy? And the answers that were given depended on how old the person was. I mean, if you can imagine this, the older a person was, the higher the amount that they needed to be wealthy. <laughs> what, what it means to be wealthy just depends on how much you happen to have. It's always more than what you have. And wealth is not the way to satisfaction or contentment. But people know this. People understand this. And so the other approach is, I mean, if the way of addition doesn't bring contentment, here's this other very ancient way of thought is it is by the way of subtraction. And that is, if I can't be content by adding more stuff, because that's been proven throughout the ages not to bring contentment, maybe I can get contentment by subtracting my desires. So just want less stuff and you'll be happier. We find this in both in Eastern philosophies and Western thought. It's like uh, I came across a, a quote from an Eastern philosopher that's, that says that, that finding happiness is like a turtle pulling its limbs into its shell, retracting your desires, minimizing your craving, and thereby you can be happy. One ancient philosopher said, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. So what is it? Is it the way of addition or the way of subtraction? 
You know, the Bible presents neither as the way to contentment. In fact, our desires are not really the problem. The problem is not in that we don't have enough or that we're wanting too much. The problem is that our desires are misdirected. It is that we are wanting the wrong thing. In fact, you can say that our desires are actually too puny, too small, too weak. We should be craving so much more than what we have, but it is what we are craving that makes the difference. What is that we should crave only what can satisfy, which ties us right back here to the text. It has to do not with our possessions, but with the presence of God. That's why the reason that is given for contentment does not lie in the things that we own. It lies beyond our possessions. The way to be content with what you have is not by looking at what you have, but by looking at the person that's given you what you have. Our contentment is not found in what we own, but who we know. And that's why the reason for contentment has to do with a promise, specifically a promise of the presence of God. What is it? He says, we can be content. We can be free from a lifestyle characterized by a craving after wealth and possessions. We can be content. Why? What's the reason? How, you, how can you give me such a bold, stark command? It, it's tied to something that God has said. And here it is. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. That is the key to contentment. It's not looking at the things you have and thinking, I wish I had more. Or it's not looking at the things you have and your desire and saying, I wish I wanted less. It's not the way of addition. It's not the way of subtraction. It's the way of finding your desires properly directed to the only source of satisfaction, which is God himself. What if, my friend, what if your craving for things is one clue that your true desire cannot be satisfied by anything in this life. What if that void that you fill in your heart that you have tried to pour so many things into is just a pointer to the fact that you were made for God and that you have a God-sized shape hole in your heart that only God can fill. What if it's not that your desires are too large, but that they're misdirected? What if it is that no job or career or opportunities or future or wealth or amount of friends, what if it, that none of those can possibly satisfy, but those only seem to make sense, those only make sense in light of the giver? And your contentment looks beyond the gift to the giver. Otherwise, the gift doesn't make any sense. That's why the writer to the Hebrews is saying, I know this seems like a hard command. I know what you have, what you had, was taken away from you. I know that you've suffered loss socially, psychologically, financially. I, I know all that. But the fact is that your contentment doesn't rest in that anyway. It, it rests in your ability to rest into the promise of God that he is never going to forsake you, even when possessions do. And that's how you can live a life free from the love of money. It's important to notice here when the writer to the Hebrews says, you, you see... 
in, in the, the middle part of verse 5, he says, for he has said. That would have alerted the readers that to an important theme all throughout the book of Hebrews. Because this book that, you're, that you've opened to, the, the, a letter really, one of the main themes is this. God has spoken, so listen carefully. We see this from the very opening of this letter. So if you'll turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 begins by saying that God has spoken in many ways in time past, but now he has spoken through Jesus Christ, so we really should pay attention. Look at verse 2 of Hebrews chapter 1. But in these last days, he has, here it is, spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, because he has spoken, so we should listen. Chapter 3 and verse 7. I know I'm having you flip through swiftly, but I want you to, I want you to feel the force of this by the time we get to chapter 13. He's urging the people to hear his voice and not harden their hearts as in the day of rebellion in the past. A verse I quoted earlier in the service in chapter 4 and verse 12, he, he tells us that the word of God, that is the speaking of God, is living and active. Right? When God speaks, we must listen because it's powerful, it's meaningful, it's effective. And then finally, uh, in chapter 12 and verse 25, We have this, the climax of the argument of the writer here to the Hebrews. He's saying, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So the full force of the effect of this entire letter is putting emphasis on the fact that when God speaks, when he says something, it's important, so we should listen. And so when he says, be content with what you have, because it's backed by a divine voice, a word from God, and here it is, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. Now the force of this is so intense. It has five, in the original language, it has five negatives just piling up to give us this kind of feeling. I will never, ever leave you. Nor will I ever forsake you. So the reason for contentment lies in the promise of God's unfailing presence, which means that contentment is not found in what you possess, but in God's presence. It's not found in what you have, but in who you know. And this is completely in line with so much of the rest of Scripture. For the, the Psalms, for instance, in which the psalmist expresses his longing, his craving after God. He says things like this in Psalm 16, 11. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to these words. These are from the, the, the Psalms. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 4 Verses 6 through 8. I was reading this with my children just this past week. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put 
more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Why is it that I can have more joy in my heart than other people have when their grain and when their wine is overflowing? Because there is a joy to be found that cannot be found in wine and grain and it is found in the presence of God. And that's why he goes on to say in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We find this in the same, uh, the, the Psalms, this theme of finding refuge in God. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. God, this is from Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not we fear though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the heart of the sea. You see, the, the Psalms are exploding with this expression of desire for the presence of God. Why? Because it's in, in his presence is fullness of joy. A joy that outstrips completely the joy that can be found in anything else. That's why contentment is not found in possessions, but in the presence of God. Just to be clear here, this contentment here does not mean apathy. Contentment doesn't mean that we don't grieve about things. It doesn't rule out legitimate sorrow over sin or, or pain that we experience in this life. It doesn't mean that we don't have the sort of desire that moves us to pray or work hard. That's not what this is at all. It is that in your sorrow, in your work, in your grief, in your prayer, there is a rest in God's presence. There's a Puritan author, Thomas Watson, he wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He defines contentment as, here it is, that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. There's contentment. The requirement for contentment the reason for contentment, and now what is the outcome or the result of contentment? Look at this in verse 6. So, we can confidently say, here's the result, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Once this conviction has settled into your heart, my friends, once you realize that my contentment is not to be found in my possessions, but in the presence of God, and once I cling to the presence of God because of his promises to me, there is a certain outcome in my demeanor, in my spirit, in my attitude. It, it affects every part of me and bursting from me is this confession of my relationship with God that the Lord is my helper. And this is a quote from Psalm 118. The Lord is my helper. He's on my side. He's not going to forsake me. He's going to be with me so that I can boldly say the Lord is my helper. And this is a fear-crushing confession. Because intertwined with discontentment is always fear. There's always fear and discontentment. There's a fear that you'll never have what you so desperately think you need to be happy. And once you've got it, or you think you got it, there's this desperate fear that you're going to lose it. That's, that's the mindset of a discontent person. There's always fear just wrapped right inside discontentment. And you notice that this contentment, it crushes that fear. It clips it right away. I will not fear. Why will we not fear? 
Because the most precious thing we could ever have is something we can never lose. That drives away fear. You're afraid you're going to lose opportunities. You're afraid you're never going to have the opportunities you so badly crave. You're afraid that something's going to happen to you in 2020 that's going to completely dispel all your happiness. Or you're afraid the opportunities you so crave are never going to come about. But once you have this conviction that grows in your heart that what you need most, that is the presence of God, can never be taken away from you, there is no fear. It is a fear-crushing conviction that results in confidence. Now, there's only one way to have this sort of confidence. And that is through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the only one that can bring us into a right relationship with God. The fact that there is joy to be found in God's presence is true only of those who are qualified to be in God's presence. Which none of us are in and of ourselves. This is why Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's why what Jesus did on the cross for us was to die to offer to us his righteousness. The righteousness that you and I can never achieve in and of ourselves. Jesus lived a perfect life to offer that to us, to be received by faith, so that in the presence of God we could have joy and not despair. The confidence that comes through a relationship with God is possible only because of what Jesus has done. And isn't this what we celebrate at Christmas time anyway? The meaning, we, we have these songs, they have this word Emmanuel in them. What does Emmanuel mean? It's one of the names for Jesus. And it means this, God with us. The very thing that we celebrate at Christmas, and that is that God has come in the flesh to bring us into a right, in Jesus Christ, to bring us into a right relationship with God, the very thing that we celebrate at Christmas is also the very thing that can give you contentment and crush your fears. Because Jesus came to die for your sins, you can have a right relationship with God. And in that, you can have contentment. And that, my friends, is the key to contentment. Not in our possessions, but in the presence of God, something we cling to by faith in God's promises.